I'm Jake Stewart, and this is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. What's that sound? Here's a hint. It's usually paired with a delicious buttery smell. That's right. It's the unmistakable sound of popcorn popping, because today we're all about the movies. As we head into summer blockbuster season, we're probably thinking about what new movies we want to go see but we might not be giving as much attention to the underlying sector trends in the movie industry. Good thing for us, Drew Borst of Goldman Sachs Research lives and breathes the finance side of the film industry and is here to talk about all things box office, why the big movies are getting bigger and bigger, how startups like MoviePass are disrupting the landscape, and much more. Drew, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jake. Let's start big picture, no pun intended, with the movie landscape here in the U.S., we're now nearing the halfway point of the year. How's the domestic box office performing this year so far, and how does it compare to what we've seen in the last couple of years? The year's off to a pretty good start. You look at box office year-to-date, it's up 5%. It's really being driven by two Marvel movies, Black Panther that came out in the first quarter, and then Avengers Infinity War. Black Panther is actually the third highest-grossing film of all time in the U.S., with nearly $700 million. Only Star Wars... The Force Awakens and Avatar have grossed more. Avengers, after only three weekends in release, is up to $550 million and still counting. It's already eighth highest movie all time in the U.S. Now, ultimately, we expect that the U.S. box office will be flat in 2018, which is broadly in line with the recent trend. 2017 was down 2%, 2016 was up 2%. And when you step back and look at the past decade, the growth has been 1.4%. So obviously, this is a mature business but still showing some growth. Now, the dollars are obviously important, but pricing is a significant driver of this growth. For example, while box office has grown by 1.4% over the past decade, attendance is actually down 1%, and ticket prices are up 3%. I would argue that attendance is a more pure measure of consumer demand, and so some of these declines are concerning for the industry. You mentioned Black Panther. In this industry, one big success or one bomb can really have a meaningful impact on the box office. How much variability is there quarter to quarter, and how does the research team take into account the lumpiness of revenue as you're building your forecasts? Yes, that's exactly right. The quarterly growth can certainly be a roller coaster, and 2017 is the perfect example of that. In the first quarter, it was up 5%, and the second quarter was down 4%. Third quarter was down 14%, and then 4Q was up 3%. And as I said, the year was down 2%. You know, and even this year, when you look at it, as I mentioned, we're up 5% year to date, but 1Q was down 2%. And then so far this quarter, we're up 23%. Ultimately, we expect 2Q to be more like 19% growth. So belying these figures, and to your point, most of what you're seeing in these figures reflects the comparisons and the performance of certain films. 1Q18 down 2% despite having Black Panther, as I mentioned, a record-setting film. That's because 1Q17 was actually an overall record itself, driven by Beauty and the Beast, Logan, and Get Out, among many other films. In a similar vein, we expect 2Q to be up significantly because last summer was actually one of the worst summers on record, actually the worst in the past 11 years. Last summer had disappointments on the sequel front. Films that people expected to do well just didn't live up to those expectations. Pirates of the Caribbean 5, Transformers 5, Cars 3, Planet of the Apes 3, and a reboot of The Mummy all underperformed. And of course, there were some new non-franchise, non-sequel films that also underperformed, like King Arthur and Valerian. 
other part of your question was, how do we forecast this? How do we handle this extreme volatility? Our methodology for modeling is really a hybrid approach. We do both a top-down and a bottoms-up approach to it. So we'll look at the release slate over the coming quarters. We'll identify the films that we think are going to be some of the bigger performers. And we'll take an attempt at trying to model the box office on a film-by-film basis for those 10 or 20 large films. It's really a benchmarking exercise, as you might expect. You know, you look at similar films, sequels, you can obviously look at the prior film. If it's R-rated comedy, you can look at similar R-rated comedies. If it's a horror film, etc. Then we also step back and look at the whole market. And that's where you do the top-down approach. And you look at the comps, what was happening in the marketplace, and you can get kind of a more complete picture. Your team's found a crowding out or cannibalization effect to movie going where if the top 20 films do really, really well, the other films suffer and vice versa. Explain that negative correlation and the dynamic at play there. My teammate, Michael Eng, has done some interesting analysis on this. And basically what we found is consumer demand for films is relatively stable. And as a consequence, when those top 20 films are really having a fantastic quarter, it's often at the cost of the non-top 20. When you look at the first quarter, you saw this play out. The top 20 films were down 9%, and the non-top 20 were up 25%. In the aggregate, box office was down 2%. And when you look at that historically, we've seen a similar pattern play out in other quarters. So what that means essentially is that there's a certain number of people going to see films, and if those top 20 are compelling, they're still going to go to the films, but they're going to be a little bit more... Catholic in their choices. Yeah. So today, obviously, people are seeing fewer movies in theaters. You mentioned the box office attendance is lower. How are theaters attracting a wider audience, and what's changed about the theater experience in the last several years? One of the things that we've seen in some of the survey work done by the Motion Picture Association of America is that we're actually seeing an increase in the number of people that want to go to the movies. We call these moviegoers, and these are people that went to the movies at least one time in the year. And in 2017, the percentage of the population that was a moviegoer, 76%. And that's a huge increase from what we've seen over the past several years. It's basically been in the 66 to 68% sort of range. But we've now seen three consecutive years where it's steadily ticking up, and 76% is the highest we've seen on record through this survey. That's very positive for the industry. People are getting out of their homes. They're willing to go to the movies. Despite conventional wisdom a little bit or that everyone's staying home and watching on their cable box. And to my earlier comments, you know, about the attendance declining, what's happening here is the people are going to the movies. There's more moviegoers, I should say. But the frequency at which they go is declining. And that's where we're starting to see more of a problem. In 2017 those moviegoers went to an average of 4.7 movies. That was down from 5.3 in 2016. And over the last nine years, the average is 5.8. You have this downward pressure on frequency, despite the fact that more people are getting out of the house and going to the movies at least once. So how about the demographics of that audience? Who's going to the movie theaters and how has that changed over that period? On the demographic front, it's been kind of interesting If you think about the growth in moviegoers last year, it was driven by two demos, people 60 plus and people 25 to 39. Each of those age cohorts grew by a double digit percent and collectively accounted for 85% of the growth in moviegoers. This is probably a group that appreciates 
some of the upgrades that we've seen in the theaters, and we'll talk about that more in a second. Across the other demos, you saw the 12 to 17 was up high single digits, so the teenagers were still going. The other demos, 2 to 11, 18 to 24, 50 to 59, those are actually declined in 2017. When you step back and you say, okay, so that's what happened to moviegoers, what's happening in ticket sales, combining the frequency and moviegoers? From a big picture, one thing is still true, that young people are still accounting for the bulk of the ticket sales. In fact, 12 to 24 account for roughly half of the ticket sales in the U.S. It's down a little bit over the past five, six, seven years. It used to be more like 55%, but still very significant, and they're going. But they, too, are becoming more selective, just like everybody else. The trend shows that among 2 to 24, you have sort of mid to high single-digit growth in ticket sales over the past 10 years, stable among the 25 to 59 crowd. And the 60-plus crowd is actually going up. They're buying more tickets. They're getting out to the movie at greater frequency. The overall story for movie theater operators is it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Moviegoers on the rise, but the frequency is coming down. Talk a little bit about box office concentration. It's a trend we've seen really in the last several years, but it continues to be more noticeable with the top few films making up a large proportion of box office revenue. What role does increased competition from video play in that? Over the past several years, you've seen a pretty significant increase in concentration. We look at the top 10 films and see what share does it have of overall box office. Starting about three years ago, we saw a noticeable uptick. So past three years, we've been averaging about 34% of overall box office has come from the top 10. And if you look at the prior five, six years, it was 26%. So a pretty significant change. This is consistent with the decline in frequency that we were talking about. In general, consumers are becoming more selective. There are three factors at play here. First, we would say that the quantity and quality of entertainment in the home has steadily improved over the past several years. And that's causing consumers to simply be more selective. Think about what's happened over the past decade or so. You've had a massive improvement and availability of content thanks to internet streaming services like Netflix, Amazon, and Hulu, who have a wealth of content that's available at your fingertips whenever you want it. Second, the visual quality of television sets have generally improved tremendously over the past decade, and the price points have plummeted. So they're very accessible for the masses. Third is the increase in the production quality of television. If you think about what's happened to television, it used to be that film stars would not want to be in television shows. Now it's very common to see those movie stars appearing in hit TV series. And then lastly is just the volume of high-quality television series has increased. In 2009, there were 200 scripted original television series being produced by the industry across all platforms, television and Internet. And then this year, we're probably going to have close to 500. A lot of that growth is coming from the streaming players, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, because they're doing more and more originals. But it's also come from the traditional TV space, the premium cable networks like HBO and Stars and Showtime, the basic cable networks, and the broadcasters have generally held flat. That's one big reason for increased selectivity. The second reason we think consumers are more selective is just the widespread availability of information about movies. Things like Rotten Tomatoes, reviews are out there, 
word of mouth from your friends spreads very quickly virally on social media platforms. And so there's really nowhere for a bad movie to hide. And I think that causes people to be like, well, I was thinking about going to that. I saw the trailer. It looked pretty good. But then they start seeing the reviews. And one of the things that's happened on that front is many people buy their tickets on ticketing apps like Fandango. And within the past two years, Fandango started to integrate the Rotten Tomatoes scores right next to the buy button. Some people hypothesize that that's probably having a negative effect. If you see that sort of rotten score or the non-fresh score, you might be hesitant about hitting that buy button. And then the third thing we believe that's causing consumers to be more selective is actually as the movie theaters have gone through a process of reseating their theaters for these reclining seats, that's a process that started about four years ago. It's been a tremendous boon to the industry. We think it's one of the reasons that moviegoers are up. But there's also an unintended consequence. When they reseat an auditorium, they actually remove something on the order of half of the seats. So that auditorium has less capacity. And when they do these refurbishments, they do every auditorium in the building. On an opening weekend when Deadpool is coming out or Avengers, if that movie theater wants to meet that demand, they have to dedicate more auditoriums to satisfy that demand. And that could push out some smaller budget films or even a big budget film that's in its third, fourth weekend of release. Those three reasons really we think are driving more selectivity among consumers. Another factor that gets cited in the concentration effect is the international box office and the growth of that. Tell us a little bit about why the ability of films to travel is leading to further consolidation. Big Hollywood studios see multiple benefits from doing these big franchise-type films, and one of them is the international box office opportunity. The international audiences are generally a little bit more forgiving when it comes to the quality of movies. They generally are more loyal to individual stars that may be in one of these big franchise films, probably cut them a little bit of slack on the quality of the story and those types of things. So in general, the audiences are maybe a little more lenient. It's not uncommon to see a big franchise film may underperform in the United States, but it could still do quite well internationally. And just to pick some recent examples, Pirates of the Caribbean 5, a disappointment domestically, not the case internationally. Same with Transformers, which is on its fifth going on sixth installment, similar phenomenon. Mission Impossible has proven that way. All those films have relatively big stars and have all significantly outperformed. So the franchise tentpole strategy, the international opportunity is one reason it's going to stay. So another reason why studios sometimes bet on these blockbusters is it just works for them. They can profit from the benefits of big licensing agreements on consumer products associated with the film. Is there anything new that's making studios put more resources behind the blockbusters? I don't know if it's anything new. I mean, some of it has to do with the maturation of the domestic box office. It's still the biggest box office market, but, you know, it's becoming a little bit more challenging. For these big studios, one of the things they're looking for is to have stability of earnings coming out of the studio. And it's their belief that these franchise films can help do that. We already talked about the international opportunity and the ancillary revenues, if we can call them that. That's a big opportunity, too. Consumer products, toys, apparel, T-shirts, and everything in between can be a fairly sizable additional revenue stream. Theme park opportunities. That's quite obvious for companies like Disney and Universal that actually own and operate 
their own theme parks. But it's also an opportunity for studios that don't have theme parks. And so Lionsgate will license out the Hunger Games franchise to international theme parks. And Paramount does the same thing with SpongeBob and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They're not necessarily huge revenue streams, but they definitely come with a very nice margin. Disney's obviously the gold standard in doing this. You know, as you see them start to open up attractions based on Star Wars, Marvel, and they will continue to do that. And then television is another opportunity. You know, increasingly we're starting to see some of these film franchises pop up on television. Just to pick a few sort of recent, Lethal Weapon, which was a movie that was, I think there are four versions of it from the late 80s and 80s 90s. and 90s, yeah. They're doing a TV show on broadcast, a similar training day. So it's like a built-in franchise with the name. and Yeah, and I think as the pressures on the TV business continue to mount, they're looking for established franchises and properties that have brand name recognition among their audiences to try to stand out in what is a very crowded field at this point. You obviously spend a lot of time looking at streaming and the trends there. No secret, obviously, that streaming's on the rise as live TV or even on demand declines. What does that mean for movies, both in the theaters and their lifespan and their profitability afterward? How does streaming fit into their calculations about new product? The rise of streaming services has put some pressure on the film business overall. The first obvious pressure has come in how it's impacted the home video market, which used to be people buying DVDs, has shrunk considerably. It's shrunk by more than 50% over the past decade. And, And that was a very high margin revenue stream. And streaming has helped contribute to that. The second way it's put pressure on the industry, and this is pressure on both the studios as well as the theater operators, is that some of the studios are renewing their efforts to shrink the theatrical release window. The industry word that gets thrown around is premium video on demand. This was a huge issue over the past two years. Today, the way it generally works is there's a 90-day window that theaters have sort of exclusive before product is made available to home video. And home video could be the DVD, digital download out of Apple. Or or rental. Yeah, or rental, Redbox, and things like that. And so the window, if you look at it over 20, 30 years, it has generally come down. used to be six months. Now it's about three months. Most recently, the studios have suggested, well, maybe we can put another window, a premium VOD window, before the traditional 90-day home video window. Because the reality is when you look at the data, and most consumers would realize this, movies aren't in the movie theater for, for three months anymore. And the data supports that. Most of a film's box office in the United States is earned in the first month, something like 95% of its box office. And this is part of the studio's argument. Then from day 30 to day 90, it's available in certain locations and maybe discount theaters, smaller theaters. But this is an opportunity for pirates to maybe get a hold of the film. The other thing that the studios want to do is they want to take advantage of all the, the marketing that they've put behind the launch of that film while it's still fresh. Capitalize on the buzz before people forget about the movie. Yeah. Exactly right. So obviously the exhibitors, the movie theater operators, fear this. You know, They don't want anything messing with the formula. And the studios, on the other hand, think there's an opportunity for incremental sales. So there's been a big debate. Now, as we sit here today, everything's kind of cooled off. And there's one main driver for why these negotiations, discussions have cooled off, and that's M&A. There's been a, a number of deals that have been announced, and a lot of the studios that were 
kind of pushing on this opportunity are involved in M&A and they said, well, let's just hit the pause button. Let's get our deals done. <laughs> they don't want to have any enemies right now. Yeah. I think for now, nothing is likely to happen near term. I think what people should look out for is once we get some of these deals closed, completed, that may take a year, 18 months. Let's see if the studios come back to make this push on premium VOD. Another big disruptor in the industry is happening at the theaters themselves with the entrance of startups like MoviePass, which is a subscription service that basically offers unlimited movies for a pretty modest annual fee, not unlike what we see in some other industries. How's MoviePass changing the landscape? This service has garnered a lot of press attention, a lot of consumer attention. The service has been around for a couple of years, but they used to charge $30 for the service. So to be clear, let me step back. This is an all-you-can-eat service for movie going. Think of it as Netflix for going to the movies. So they were saying, hey, pay me $30, and you can go as many movies as you want per month. Last year, they lowered their price to $9.95, called $10. And so that got a lot of attention. That really caused subscribers to pick up materially. Last we heard, there are over 2 million subscribers in the U.S. And to be clear, MoviePass does not own any movie theaters. They're not affiliated with any of the major theater chains. In fact, they have a pretty icy, cool relationship with the theaters. But they're a big consumer, obviously, for the theaters. They're buying the tickets to allow the folks in. Yeah, I think the concern by the the owners, which definitely has some legitimacy, is that MoviePass is effectively discounting the ticket to an unsustainable level, conditioning the consumer for a lower price point. And there's pretty big questions about the financial stability and sustainability of this business model. The math is fairly simple. They're asking the consumer to spend $10. The average ticket price for a movie in the United States is $10, just shy of $10. So even if you subscribe and you went once, it's a break-even proposition. Unfortunately for MoviePass, the initial 2 million subscribers that have come in are pretty avid enthusiasts. They're the repeat customers. They are, and that's where the model is causing some trouble. And AMC, which is the largest um, movie theater operator in the U.S., has actually provided some statistics about it. AMC skews to some bigger markets. They've said MoviePass, when they buy tickets from us, on average they're spending $12 because they're in bigger markets. And the number of times per month that MoviePass is going is 2.7 times per month. So that's roughly $32 of ticket expense. So MoviePass has to pay that $32 out per subscriber, and they're collecting revenue from that subscriber of only $10. And hence, everybody's wondering, how's this going to work over the long term? Can you keep this up? We've had discussions with MoviePass, put this question to them. You know, I think something has to change either on their cost side. Can they get some volume discounts from the exhibitors? As I mentioned, that doesn't look like the exhibitors are interested in that right now. The other opportunity is maybe on the revenue side. They're looking to go to the studios and say, hey, Warner Brothers, I can help you market your movie. I've got this subscriber base of avid moviegoers, and we can help market and target them with their movies. We know what types of movies they like. You know, we can do some targeted advertising for you. At this point, it's still all up in the air. What other shakeups are we seeing in the landscape today? What should we keep an eye out for? You're going to continue to see the movie theaters upgrading their theaters with reclining seats. This is a process that started four years ago. At the end of 2017, among the major theaters, roughly a third of their circuit had been refurbished with reclining seats. 
and probably by the end of this year, you'd be up to 45%, and it'll probably keep going after that. As I mentioned, the consumer might start to see these hit movies start to crowd out some of the small movies on opening weekend. But I think the movie goer data that we were talking about earlier, this increase in movie goers, reflects the fact that the implementation of reclining seats is working. Another thing you're likely to continue seeing is the exhibitors are going to keep pushing for online ticketing. Right now, a lot of the online ticketing happens through third-party sites like Fandango, but the movie theaters are now starting to launch their own, and they're aggressively seeking subscribers. Now, some of these are just sort of free, and the implementation of reclining seats helps in that process because they've gone to reserve seating, right? When they've implemented these reclining seats, you've got to pick your seat, which is a great consumer benefit, but it also requires you've got to get on an app, get online, and do it. And so the exhibitors are trying to get people to do that on their own site instead of doing it on third-party sites. I think you also see, to this movie pass point, the exhibitors will launch their own subscription services. Cinemark, which is the third largest exhibitor in the U.S., has already launched a service. It's similar to MoviePass, but different. They're basically charging $9 a month, so slightly less, but you only get to go to one movie a month, so they're limiting it. If you want to go to additional movies... They movie will, of the Month Club. Yeah, yeah. basically. Yeah. At your choice. They'll give you discounts on additional movies in that month, about 10% discount, and they give you 20% discounts to concessions. So that model definitely seems more sustainable to me, and I think you'll see more of that happening. As I mentioned, premium VOD, probably on pause for now, but I wouldn't be surprised to see something happen in the next three years or so. And then another topic for the exhibitors, which is always around but never seems to gain traction, is just alternative content, right? You have this big physical space. Are there other types of content that you could show besides movies? It's never really taken off. There's various initiatives that are underway, including virtual reality. Are there ways for the theaters to change an auditorium and make it a space for virtual reality? Esports is another thing. We've seen some of the movie theaters saying, well, we're going to show this eSport tournament on the big screen. During the day or, yeah. Yeah, like a live viewing party, if you will. So I think they'll dabble in those areas. I guess given the history, I'm a little bit skeptical because they've tried this type of content before and hasn't really taken off. You touched on the international box office earlier. Let's talk a little bit more about that globalization of the industry. China's box office in particular has been very strong this year. Brazil's been hurting. Talk us through what's going on here. Yeah, the Chinese box office is a great growth story. has been and is likely to be over the next several years. To give you some statistics about that, last year, the industry box office in China grew 22% in local currency terms. Over the past five years, it's been a 26% compound annual growth, or what we call CAGR. The growth is being driven by really two primary factors, I would say. One is just the increase of screens. You know, the country is underscreened. It's still a, a nascent young market. So they've been building out more theaters with more screens, particularly in some of these smaller tier three, tier four types of cities. And so that's been driving growth. The second area of growth has been in local film production by Chinese studios. Hollywood films play very well in that market. But I would say, particularly over the past two, three years, we've seen a real rise in the quality and popularity of some of the local productions. You, know, you go back four years ago, and you'd look at the top films in China, and it would be you know, very similar to the United States. The past couple of years, these are things like Wolf Warrior 1 and 2 and Monster Hunt, which, you know, these are local titles. 
that don't play well in, in the U.S., but are putting up big numbers. So that's probably likely to continue the maturation of their box office. The Latin American market's been a little bit challenged just because of the economic backdrop. U.S. content plays pretty well down there, but it's having a little bit of a tough time. When you look at the long-term history of Latin America and box office, you know, it does ebb and flow a little bit. The economy probably will come back at some point and we would expect sort of brighter days for box office. How long have you been covering this industry? It's been 15 years that I've covered the, the U.S. media market. The last eight, I've been the, the lead analyst. So what surprises you most about what's changed around the state of the box office over that period? What surprised me the most is there's a tremendous amount of disruption in the, the media marketplace, broadly defined. What I find interesting is that box office is proving to be fairly resilient despite all that. There is some declines in attendance, but I think it's holding up better than one would expect. And when you look at what's happening in television, the disruption is much greater. It definitely creates a challenging space to invest in for shareholders, for public investors. Because when you think about it, film had often, over long periods of time, had sort of been frowned upon by investors. It was expensive, low return on invested capital, volatile business, difficult to predict. And television was always viewed as easier to predict, better returns on capital. And now things are changing. You know, it's gotten more dynamic as the studios have moved to these franchise models that seem to have pretty good legs. The TV business is becoming harder. So the one liner is that in television, the hits keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller. As the supply has ballooned, it's become a crowded marketplace. Difficult for even a very well-produced, high-quality series to stand out. Whereas in movies, it's just the opposite. The hits are getting bigger and bigger and bigger in the United States, but also globally. So that's probably what surprised me the most. Let's wrap it up with a lightning round. What movie are you most looking forward to this summer? Personally, I'm excited about The Incredibles 2. You know, this is a Pixar movie. I really enjoyed the first one. So I'm very interested to see what they're doing. Deadpool 2, another film I think will be very entertaining. And what's a favorite childhood memory from the movies? As a kid, I had very fond memories of going to the theater in my neighborhood. It had 12 screens. I remember seeing Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the action movies of the 80s, stuffing my face with popcorn, and it was great. The other thing that I have very fond memories, and I'm probably dating myself a little bit, but you know, I grew up in the era when cable television was just taking off, and we were subscribers to some of the premium channels. So those premium cable channels that would have just unlimited movies, I, I watched a lot of movies through HBO and Showtime and those types of services. If you were to star in any movie, which would it be? My personal preference in movies, especially as I've grown up, is I veered away from sort of the action films, but one of my favorite films is Michael Clayton. George Clooney is the star. I think that'd be fun. I, the sort fixer. of thriller. Yeah, yeah, The Fixer. It's a great role. Have you ever gone to a midnight premiere? I have not. All right, something to look forward to. Drew, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges to Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on May 16th, 2018. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. 
The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.